0: Where does morality ultimately come from? Is it something that's part of the evolutionary process? Is it something that a society is free to determine on its own? Or where does it come from? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on Bible Study org starting now. Hello everybody and welcome once again to org. Today is Thursday, June the 11th of 2000. And and I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, as always, and thank you guys so much for joining us today. It's a blessing to have you here. Hope you guys are having a great week and everything. Uh, Of course, this is our lesson on God's righteousness. Uh, It's not really entirely necessary that you've listened to every lesson in this series up to this point, but this series is called Knowing God, and the point of this series, of course, would be to discuss the things that we know about God based on Scripture, and reason. And actually, while we're talking about God's righteousness, it's revealed in both. We're going to talk about that in just a minute here when we get started, but I do want to welcome you guys and thank you for joining us. I may have what could be some good news. Uh, I say may be good news because it's still kind of up in the air and undecided uh, at this point. But yesterday, uh, Mark DeMoz from Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas, the church that's planting us uh, from down in Little Rock, he came up here for the day and we went out to lunch. Uh, Mark, Brian, my uh, church planting co-pastor, and I we went out to lunch with, uh, with a, a Hispanic leader in the area who may be interested in joining our leadership team here uh, as we're planning this church and of course you know this is our next move our next move is to get multi ethnic leadership because honestly there are a lot of churches which say uh, you know we are multi ethnic or whatever but the fact is if it's not modeled in the leadership it's just not going to happen, and that's what we've seen in the churches around here. That's what I've seen in churches in North Carolina. The multiethnic leadership has to come before almost anything else. First you have the theology, then you have the leadership. And so you know we've got our theology. next we're going for the leadership. So anyway, if you guys could just pray that this leader would uh, you know if he if he is God's choice, if he's the person that God has called to uh, to help us get this church planted, uh, you know, that, that his will would be done, that um, that this guy that we talked with yesterday would feel God's calling in his life to do this. He actually moved here several years ago uh, to work with a church or to start a, a Hispanic church, and it just didn't work out for one reason or another. So he's been doing other things ever since then. Uh, but God did put the call on his life to come here to uh, to help start a church. So, you know, maybe that was our church. Uh, we're just praying for the Lord's will to be done. If you guys could be praying for that as well, I would really, really appreciate it. So anyway, just one quick word before we get started, and that is to remind you guys that this month, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries is going to get a copy of Paul Copen's book called True for You, but Not for Me, Deflating the Slogans that Leave Christians Speechless. Now, this is one book that is just a fantastic resource for anybody who is doing conversational apologetics, which uh, is my big thing right now. I, I am really big into conversational apologetics. This book has a study guide in the back that you can use for a small group. Uh, this is a fantastic book for small group discussion, especially since uh, some of this conversational stuff you know, requires some practice, kind of teaches you how to stay on your toes. So anyway, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 dollars or more this month to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries is going to have this book sent to you guys. I really want to you know see you guys get equipped with some of the best books out there, and this isn't exclusive to us, you can get it on Amazon, but that is definitely one book that belongs in everybody's library. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with today's lesson with a quick word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this time that you've set aside for us to learn more about you, to get to know you better. Uh, Lord, help us to understand what it means when we say that you are righteous. Uh, that's one of the things that's so awesome about you, God, and what sets you apart from, uh, from everything else is just how righteous you are. So help us to develop a deeper understanding of that today in order that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the great proofs of God's existence that we've discussed on the podcast before, you know, we discussed it in Romans chapter 2, but one of the great proofs of God's existence is the fact that people throughout the world and throughout history hold to what essentially amounts to the same set of moral principles, the same sense of morality. Well, where does this come from? Where does this sense of morality or this set of moral principles come from? Well, some would argue that it's actually part of the evolutionary process. After all, if humanity is evolving, then it would make sense that morality is evolving too. And actually, the same people who will claim that morality is part of evolution will commonly assert that it was immoral for God to command that the Israelites kill all of the men, women, and children of other nations in battle, leaving none of them alive. Well, Aside from the fact that life belongs to God, since he created it, you know, he possesses it, all of it, uh, you know, these same critics overlook the fact that they are contradicting themselves. After all, if morality is evolving, then we actually can't make moral judgments on historical events. In other words, let me put it this way, let's say that their claim that morality is evolving is true now if this is the case then morality today is not what it has always been right okay so if morality has not always been as it is today then we can't use the moral standards that we have today in applying them to historical events and circumstances i mean why would anyone think that morality is evolving Well, you know, maybe for some, they just haven't thought about what they're saying, what they're implying. For others, it's a way of escaping the necessary conclusion that if there's an absolute standard of morality, if there is uh, an absolute, universal, timeless set of moral principles which transcend time and human cultures, then there must be a God. But clearly, the idea that morality is part of the evolutionary process is, uh, first of all, it's baseless, and second of all, it makes it impossible for anyone to make moral judgments on historical or current events. I mean, if you were to punch them in the face when they say that, and then claim that morality has just evolved, which allowed you... To punch them in the face without any moral consequences, they will very likely disagree with you. Uh, and I'm, I'm not speaking from experience, but I'm just guessing. But you know, so therefore, it's it's clear that morality is not part of the evolutionary process. Similarly, some others would say that a society is free to determine what moral standards or which moral principles they'll abide by. They're able to invent it for themselves, right? However. This clearly isn't the case either, since nobody in their right mind believes that Nazi Germany should have been allowed to engage in genocide, murdering millions upon millions of Jews. Nazi Germany was a society which tried to determine or uh, invent their own moral principles or their own moral standards. They tried to define their own uh, borders for morality, but nobody else believed that it was morally acceptable. And so thus, it's clear that a society is actually not free to determine or create their own standard of morality. So where does this universal moral law come from? And this is something that we've discussed on the podcast before, a lot of you guys know the answer to this, but you know, uh, in Islam, uh, for for Allah, the false god of Islam, morality is actually below him, and thus Allah isn't bound by the moral law. And some would argue actually the exact opposite, they'd say that God is beneath the moral law. However, if this is the case, then God isn't supreme, rather, whoever or whatever created the moral law, which is above God, would be the supreme being, but Christianity doesn't hold to either position. Rather, we believe that the universal moral law comes directly from God's nature. We are created in the image of God, and thus we recognize the morality which flows directly from him. And by the way, this is among the several reasons why I reject five-point strong Calvinism, which asserts that humanity is totally depraved, and that's because if the image of God were completely erased in humanity, if we were completely and totally depraved without any hope at all, then nobody would recognize or live according to the the moral law. However, even the unregenerate recognize that murdering an innocent person, among other things, is morally wrong. And that's because the image of God is effaced, but not erased. Anyway, moving on. When we refer to God's moral goodness, uh, you know, we refer to it either as his righteousness or his justice the Hebrew word for righteousness is sadik which actually means just correct or lawful and there's a similar Hebrew word for righteousness as well and that is tzedekah the Greek word for righteousness is dikaios which means just right innocent virtuous upright and so on and so forth and so thus when we refer to God as being righteous we're saying that his justice is perfect and his character is flawlessly virtuous. Now, the word righteous or righteousness, these words are found so frequently throughout Scripture that it's virtually impossible to miss the fact that Scripture attributes righteousness to God. The Old Testament alone, uh, we, we find the word righteous over 200 times and the word righteousness over 150 times just in the Old Testament. We find the words righteous and righteousness over 150 times in the New Testament. Now while each instance of the use of these words doesn't uh, apply specifically to God himself necessarily they do apply to various things related to God for example psalm 19:9 9 tells us that quote the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous psalm 119 verse 160 says the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting So the book of Job actually addresses the issue of God's righteousness or his justice. And Elihu says this about trusting the righteousness and justice of God. He says, Shall one who hates justice rule? And will you condemn the righteous, mighty one, who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked ones, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor? For they are all the work of his hands." That's from Job chapter 34, verses 17 to 19. So his ordinances and his judgments are thus declared to be righteous in accordance with God's nature and with his character. Now along the same lines, Dr. Luke records Paul saying, Uh, In Acts, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Acts chapter 17 verses 30 and 31. So again, we see here that God's judgments of the world are perfectly righteous and just. And it's because of God's righteousness that people will be judged according to their deeds. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 tells us, quote, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 tells us, quote, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 seems to indicate that it's God's righteousness which is also the basis for the believer's salvation and rewards in heaven. Here Paul writes, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing psalm chapter 89 verse 14 declares righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne loving kindness and truth go before you now of course this is speaking of god as being the sovereign king over his creation and the basis of his position as king and judge rests in the fact that he is perfectly righteous the book of uh, of Hebrews also quotes Psalm chapter 45, verses 6 and 7, where the author uh, writes, quote, but about the son, he, that is the father, says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. That's from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 5 declares that it's God's righteousness which prevents him from doing injustice, where we read here that, quote, the Lord within her is righteous he does no wrong morning by morning he dispenses his justice and every new day he does not fail Now further, I think we should also make note of the fact that scripture tells us that God's righteousness will endure forever, which makes sense, since A, God is eternal, and B, God is unchanging. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9, Paul quotes Psalm 112, verse 9, and we read here, as it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And further, since righteousness is a moral quality, it's also worth noting, and this is, this is important, it's also worth noting that this is something that creatures can imitate to an extent. Now, with that being said, you know, what does scripture say about what we are capable of or what we should do? What's our response? Well, the Bible says that we should be instructed in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Righteousness is also something to be sought after by us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Romans chapter 6, verse 18 says that we should be living like slaves or like, uh, like bond servants to righteousness. Romans chapter 10, verse 3 tells us that we should submit ourselves to God's righteousness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, quote, the one who practices righteousness is is righteous, just as he, that is Jesus, is righteous. The Bible also tells us that righteousness is worth being persecuted for. In Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul tells us that, quote, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, not surprisingly, the Christian church has affirmed throughout the ages that God is indeed righteous. Irenaeus responded to the Marcion heresy which claimed that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and vengeance, whereas the God of the New Testament was a God of just love, uh, and that these were two separate gods. So Irenaeus was responding to that when he wrote that, quote, "...in both Testaments there is the same righteousness of God being displayed when God takes vengeance, in the one case indeed typically, temporarily, and more moderately, but in the other, really enduringly and more rigidly." End quote. Justin Martyr wrote that, quote, We must declare him, that is God, to be benevolent, in other words, all loving, foreknowing, needing nothing, righteous, and good, end quote. Clement of Alexandria wrote that, quote, God is by no manner or means unrighteous, as the demons are, but in the very highest degree righteous. End quote. Augustine wrote, quote, "And who is this but Thee, our God, the sweetness and wellspring of righteousness, who renders to every man according to his deeds." End quote. And elsewhere, uh, Augustine wrote that quote, the more we ardently love God, the more certain and the more calmly do we see Him, and we behold in God the unchangeable form of righteousness, according to which we judge that man ought to live." End quote. Thomas Aquinas also wrote about God's righteousness. He wrote, quote, It is impossible for God to will anything but that which his wisdom approves. This is, as it were, his law of justice, in accordance with which his will is right and just. Hence, what he does according to his will, he does justly. As we do justly what we do according to law. But whereas law comes to us from some higher power, God is a law unto himself. And elsewhere, Aquinas elaborated on exactly what that means. He wrote that quote, God's being is identical with his acting. Therefore, for him to be good and to be just is one and the same. And then in the Reformation, uh, you know, there was a great emphasis on God's righteousness. That was a major issue since guys like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, among many others, were arguing for, uh, you know, the doctrine of justification and that it came by grace through faith. Well, God's righteousness is what is necessary for a person to enter heaven, and thus it's right at the heart of the issue of justification. So anyway, Calvin wrote that, quote, "...assuredly, the attributes which are most necessary for us to know are these three, loving-kindness, on which alone our entire safety depends," Judgment, which is daily exercised on the wicked and awaits them in a severer form, even for eternal destruction, and righteousness, by which the faithful are preserved and benignly cherished. Jonathan Edwards, in writing about the resurrection, wrote that, God willing the event was the most holy volition of God that was ever made known to men, and God's act in ordering it was a divine act, which, above all others, manifests the moral excellency of the divine being. And of course, when we're talking about the moral excellency of God, that is righteousness. That's what righteousness is. It's moral excellency. And so thus, the church has clearly affirmed through the ages that perfect righteousness is to be attributed to God. Now, as we close, you know, there's one issue that comes up fairly consistently when discussing God's righteousness or his justice, and that's this. If God is perfectly just, then sinners should be punished for every sin that they commit. However, Christianity is centered around the belief that Jesus, who lived a perfectly sinless life, died on the behalf of the unrighteous. So the idea that Jesus would be punished and that the guilty would be freed of God's condemnation seems to epitomize injustice. And indeed, would this not be considered the greatest injustice of all time if it's true that Jesus was the only human to ever not sin? Well, in response, the crucifixion was required because of God's justice. That's why Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. Uh, it's because of God's justice, not to escape God's justice. Indeed, humanity's sinfulness is, uh, is universal. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 declares that there is, quote, none who is righteous, end quote, and people may think that they can be righteous apart from God, but Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 tells us what God thinks about that, uh, tells us what he thinks about our idea of self-righteousness, and we read here that, quote, all of us... Have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And then Paul tells us in the book of Romans, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe, for there is no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. And actually the NIV translates this as justice. But this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's from Romans chapter three, verses 21 to 26. And you know, this passage reveals to us that the righteous Jesus died for the unrighteous us, in order that God's justice could be satisfied. There was no other way for the righteousness of God to be appeased. So it's because God's justice was satisfied that all people have an opportunity to receive the gift of salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And while it would be unjust for a righteous God to accuse a righteous person for the crimes committed by the unrighteous, it's not unjust for an innocent person to voluntarily pay the penalty for a crime on the behalf of a guilty person. In the same way, Jesus paid for our sins, but he himself wasn't charged with or found guilty of our sins. He made the payment that was necessary for sin. So anyway, we definitely have a righteous and just God Uh, there's no question about it the Bible declares that God is righteous the moral law proves that God is righteous and it also proves that we were made in the image of God and uh, the, the moral law transcends time and culture so anyway if you have any questions or need clarification on anything as always, you guys can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And I do want to remind you guys that you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter is www.twitter.com slash Toby logston. So God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by biblestudypodcast.org, a para ministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to biblestudypodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus.